Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's interview, recorded April 20, 2023, we discuss the prospects of Canadian LNG in a global context and possible implications for Canadian and global emissions targets and a few other points we're going to cover. I'm really happy to have joined me today from Washington, D.C. is Eric Miller. Eric is the president of Rideau Potomac Strategy Group. He has previously served in several roles focused on international trade, including as vice president for North America at the Business Council of Canada and as Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada's representative in Washington. Eric is also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington, a fellow with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's Future Business Centre, and really pleased to say that he's a fellow with us here at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Nice to see you again, Eric. Nice to see you, Kelly. Give us a little overview to start with on what the Rideau Potomac Strategy Group is and why you created it. So Rideau Potomac Strategy Group is an advisory firm that focuses on helping companies and governments understand the challenges facing them in an increasingly complex world and how to solve them. So my tagline is embracing complexity, driving solutions. And that's very much what I try to do. We work across the whole array of different sectors uh, from energy and mining and forestry to quantum computing and advanced technology and food and things of that nature. And from a personal level, partly why I created it is because I like working in all of these different diverse areas and candidly finding interconnections between them because the economy is very diverse, but there are many challenges that are cross-cutting. And I'd like to work on helping companies and governments to deal with those cross-cutting challenges. You know, I it, it, that you you reminded me of a of a uh, webcast we put together with you about quantum computing, and to be honest, it scared scared the hell out of me. Um, but you're totally right. Like, I think the term interdependence isn't nearly uh, expanded enough, and and it really relates to what you're talking about, right? Like, you, there is right. they, everything's connected, literally. If it's not in the netherworld ether, um, it's it's physically connected. So. But I want to talk about um, global LNG issues, and and I want to want us to dive into a paper you recently wrote for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's Future of Business Center entitled "Canada and Global Energy Security: The Role of Natural Gas in a Lower Carbon Future," which looks into the factors shaping the need for Canadian natural gas internationally. What brought you to write this paper, and what was what's what's the thesis? Well, Kelly, I've spent a lot of time in Asia, and when you go to cities like Hanoi or Shanghai or uh, places in Indonesia and certainly in India, what you see is a huge amount of air pollution. And the fact of the matter is, is that today China puts out more greenhouse gas emissions than the U.S., the EU, and Japan combined. And so we have to find a way particularly to help the shift away from coal. We've seen a lot of shift away from coal in North America over the last 20 years, but we need to find a way to move to a cleaner fuel source. But we have to do that in a manner that allows tradable markets globally to work and to be realistic about where we're going to get a lot of our base load energy. Because these things all imply choices. If we are adding more renewables, which we should. 
there are very significant supply chain issues around the critical minerals which go into making wind turbines around the polysilicon that's sourced in part from the Xinjiang region in China. And we have in Canada a massive supply of natural gas that if put into the Asian markets to offset coal would essentially allow them by converting only 20% of Asia's coal-fired power plants to reduce their emissions by more than the equivalent of all of Canada's annual emissions. So essentially you do 20% conversion of Asia's coal-fired power plants and you get one Canada saved. You do 40%, you get two Canada saved. And then you're talking about real gains. What's going to make a difference here, Kelly, is about whether or not we're able to take big bites of, at the problem. And one of the ways to take big bites at the problem is to get clean Canadian natural gas in use in Asia, offsetting coal. Yeah, you know, you make that point in the paper that the emissions reductions replacing coal-fired generation. Um, but, you know, several companies in Asia have been burned by bets on natural gas because of price volatility, especially in recent times with the, with the conflict in, well, sorry, the war in Ukraine. And you mentioned some numbers there, about 20%, but could you elaborate a bit on what, you know, this is, really speaks to energy security and with Canada providing natural gas compared to coal in Asia, like, could you firm that up a little bit or is it, was that a broad stroke of 20%? Yeah. Or? So look, so IHS, market has done some assessments about well what would happen if we had converted if we convert 20 percent of asia's coal-fired power plants to natural gas and one of the things that you you see there is they come up with about 680 metric tons in terms of reductions and so with um, with that scenario you see uh you compare that against the canadian emissions and you see an ability to make real progress. But in order to make real progress, we have to start thinking differently. You're absolutely right about companies having gotten burned about demand in, in Asia for natural gas. But we have to learn in terms of how we do trade policy from people like the Japanese. And so what I suggest in the paper is a mechanism whereby Canada would organize the capital, a combination of public and private capital, to put LNG power plants in Asian countries that are rooted in a feedstock agreement, an offtake agreement essentially, or an intake agreement of Canadian natural gas. So it says we put up the money to get the facilities built. We provide all of the equipment and services and things of that nature that are required. And as part of the deal, you sign a long-term agreement to feed that facility with Canadian natural gas. So it's not just one company sets up a facility and then sources the lowest cost or preferred producer. What you have is that as part of the financing package, you link that up taking Canadian natural gas. So why is it that Canada sells a lot of canola to Japan? It sells a lot of canola to Japan because there are crushing plants in Japan to make canola oil that are able to take and are configured to take Canadian canola seed and make that product and put it into the market. And so in this case, if we are linking the financing package for the power plant 
with the use of Canadian natural gas, we have a much better chance of dealing with that volatility issue. And this is exactly the same concept of what you're seeing in critical minerals. So somebody like Nouveau Bon Graphite from Quebec has signed a long-term offtake agreement with Panasonic. So they know where their product's going and they know what price they're getting for it. So let's just drill down on that a bit. I'm thinking out loud here. So would that be an opportunity for the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board to go to another country, which they do? You know, I think 80% of CPPIB's investments are global. They aren't in Canada. Yep. And people jump yep. up and down about that. But that's exactly where they should be, expanding economies where GDPs are 4 or 5% growth per year so is that an avenue like could is that something that could work is is that yes they, absolutely they would, and or like maybe a big gas producer becomes a is a part and of the uh diversifies its income or its investment into the into a facility in a foreign country would that be a like sounds like a so business a, transaction yeah there's a lot of ways that you can build the capital stack but what we see with um, regulations around uh, out of the office for the for um, the, the superintendent of financial institutions, some of Mark Carney's work is the whole focus from the the NGO community is to end financing for oil and gas projects, and that is something that is a great mistake because when you look at the need to get LNG into the market, LNG will make a huge difference on the overall global emissions picture. As I say. We need to think globally and act globally. And the way that you do that is by saying, look, we are going to make sure that this power plant, which you would have built on coal, or which is already coal that we're doing conversions, will burn Canadian natural gas. And then as this concept proves itself out, you're going to see a lot of people in Calgary and Toronto and global investors who will want to come in and take a piece of that capital stack. And the role of public money in this would actually be relatively small. There may be some guarantees, there may be some direct financing uh, from EDC, but you could also use this as a way of shaping uh, the, the supply chain for this, where you get smaller companies who are able to sell their components and parts to go into the power plant, and you have larger Canadian primes who know how to build power plants to actually do the work. And you have created a demand for your product at the end. Just like the canola producers selling to Japan know what the Japanese are going to take and how that product is going to be used and put into the supply chain. We can do this with natural gas. And when you look at the overall carbon picture, I'm saying one and a half to three percent global emissions reductions is a pretty darn good goal to go after. And we know how to do it. So why don't we do it? What a great idea. But it, it, it runs up against that. And you mentioned Carney's name and, and I'm going to, I want to pivot a bit, Eric, to about to regulatory issues and, and uh, things like that, because it, major products in Canada, um, the long lead times are, they're an insult to people's intelligence, uh, seriously, uh, increases in the uncertainty and cost of major products and hurts the energy security and economic development of the country let alone the opportunity to, to grow the economy. You talked briefly about the impact of the Canadian Energy Regulator and the Impact Assessment Agency. And I've got some thoughts on this, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about those bodies and where they are today, what they've morphed from into and where you see them going in the future. And then I'll make a retort or a reply and we can discuss it a little bit. 
I mean, I think that that the Canadian energy regulator is getting its sea legs. I know there's a lot of concern in Calgary and a lot of unhappiness about the the switch from the National Energy Board to the Canadian Energy Regulator. But ultimately, my view on any regulatory process or body is does it solve the fundamental problems that it is designed to deal with? And one of the big fundamental problems that we have in Canada is the inability to know whether a project that gets proposed is going to get through. And the reason is, is because there's no pathway for defining what is social license. So the key stated reason why the Canadian Energy Regulator was created was because the old process was not seen as legitimate in the eyes of a certain critical mass of the population. That's fine, they're entitled to their view. So the question becomes to me, if you are a newer energy regulator, how are you going to clearly define a path so that companies that are putting millions and billions of dollars of capital on the line to build these projects will have some sense of if the projects are going to get built, what they need to do, what the environmental testing standards need to look like, what the equipment standards look like, uh, if an approval is given that we're going to be clear that the pipeline can get built through a particular area, what do they need to see in terms of relations with First Nations? The problem now is that you're, you know, it's like standing on the edge of a cliff in, in on a dark night. You throw something over it, you don't know how long it's going to take to hit, you don't know where it's going to land, and that's a problem. In recent days, I've spent a lot of time in in and around the U.S. Congress having discussions about permitting reform, because there is a very clear understanding that is developing in the U.S. that if you want to have a shift to a low carbon economy, you need to make it easier to permit electricity transmission lines. And you need to make it easier to do mining projects for critical minerals. And yes, you need to make it easier to get natural gas pipelines that are built and infrastructure put in place. Because we all know that a lot of the environmental community use litigation and other processes to slow things down. But it is not unreasonable in a free society to say, what is it I need to do if I've done everything right? What have I done? How long is the process going to take? What do I need to do to demonstrate that I've done everything right in order to be able to move a project forward? And that's the challenge that we have right now, is that we don't know what that looks like. And I think that the, the Canadian Energy Regulator and the Impact Assessment Agency are trying to figure this out. I will give them the benefit of the doubt in, in, in working on that process. But I think the challenge we have is there's limited confidence that I know what social license looks like if I come in with any sort of project that's in their purview. And that's something that's a real problem and needs to get fixed in the very near future. Well, you, you know, Eric, it's interesting that, we're, that we've, we've come to this part of the conversation because I, I'm just going to forewarn our, our listeners that over the next few weeks, Joe's going to release podcasts from India and about coal and a podcast with uh, our good friend and supporter, Mac Van Willigan from Viewpoint Research about 
ESG and social license. And, and you know what, you know, it doesn't matter who we seem to talk to in the last few weeks, months, that's, it's all, it's all coming down to this. You can't clearly define this. Like it's not, there's, there's too many moving parts. I hate to use the term a Gordian knot, but it looks like that to me. And I, and, and, and how we solve these issues is in, is going to be very, very, it's not easy. That said, I'm with you in the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I'd like to just make a point that it, deep in the Canadian budget, there's some re references to some softening of these requirements for the IAA because both of the uh, administrations in Washington and Canada are out there in front of this critical mineral strategy. Critical minerals require new mines. And the law of unintended consequences rearing its head here because the regulatory framework around a new mine uh, given historical norms, is it's past a decade. That's not going to work if you think you're going to get your own critical mineral strategy to source min minerals in on this continent sometime between tw now and 2030. So I think there is a softening in the. It wasn't mentioned very much, but there's a. It's deep in the budget, and I think I'm I'm going to bring somebody on to talk about that. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, Eric. But in there, there's yeah. some softening around the the. IAA because they have to, that, 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 there's just no way that-, I, that these... I, I work a lot in the mineral space. And what you see is that, it, you know, it's six to 10 years typically to get a mine permitted. And that's usually after about a decade of doing preliminary exploration and figuring it out. And then, okay, great, I've got it permitted. And then I have to do my bankable feasibility study and I have to finance it. And then I have to, to get the thing built and I need to get the access infrastructure put in place. And then I need to think about important things like refining. What, what product streams am I going to make? Who am I going to sell this to? Where is it going to go into, into the production stream? And so the typical process that we've seen is 16 to 20 years to get a mine built, excluding the whole process of people tramping around in in rural areas looking at deposits or, or or using gis or things of that nature we can't have that we are at this moment in a race both to convert the vehicle fleet from the um, from the internal combustion engine into electric vehicles because the whole world is moving in that direction. The OEMs have put half a trillion dollars in capital to build this stuff. But the question is, where are you going to get your raw materials from? And at the same time, and even more worryingly, is we are in a period of existential competition, if you want to call it that, with China. At this very moment, China controls 90% of the chemicals cobalt chemicals that go into a battery. They control about 82% of global refining. They dominate, absolutely dominate the supply chain of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where the huge majority of the uh, production is taking place. And without cobalt, you can't put a fighter jet in the air. You can't have a bomb casing that works. And you can't have a wind turbine. You can't have an electric vehicle because cobalt deals with high heat, high stress processes that, and it mitigates what's called thermal runaway, which is a 
a chemically induced fire. And so we need to get more cobalt. We need to get it done faster. We need to get more magnesium. We need to get more graphite. We need to get more nickel. And by the way, we're doing this in a market where China has 60, 70, 80% market share. And like any good monopolist, they are using that market share. And so it's great to have a strategy, but how are we going to get a mine built? What the Germans did when they faced losing access to Russian natural gas was they built an LNG import terminal on the North Coast in nine months, something that normally takes a minimum of five years. So we can do this if we want to do it, but we have to actually embrace the seriousness of this and start looking at real solutions for taking real bites out of the carbon picture. And we have to understand that uh, there is no silver bullet, but that LNG is a massive, massive contributor to decarbonization uh, of the world if it's put to take out coal. You know, you mentioned uh, a whole potpourri of things that fit together to make these things happen. And, you know, Energy Security Cubed is called um, that because it's energy environment and, and economics. And, and uh, let's talk about finance a bit, because in your paper, you and you mentioned this briefly earlier as OSFI, but the the uh, Office of Superintendent of Financial Institutions guideline B15 relating to climate risk management. W what is this anticipated to do, and how could it affect Canadian energy in industry more specifically LNG? So this is part of a bigger move from certain financial regulators, and you've seen this out of some of the uh, the G the G20 conversations out of um, Mark Carney's work that have spun out of the, um, uh, the, uh, the COP processes uh, at the UN level. And it's about needing to do reporting about emissions of certain projects that are being financed in, uh, by certain financial institutions. And of course, the hope of those who say, we must leave every piece of fossil energy in the ground is that banks won't want to touch this stuff and they won't want to finance it. And so the concern is that you're creating a chill on the ability to raise capital. And that chill will therefore mean that you can't build the capital stack to do uh, a new LNG export terminal or to fully realize the, the potential of the Montney play on the BC Alberta border because we're not doing fossil energy projects, thank you very much. So it's, a, it's not a way of saying we're gonna do a ban, but what it is, is it makes it harder to finance, already difficult to finance projects because anytime you're talking billions of dollars, building the capital stack on that is a very difficult undertaking by definition because it's a lot of money and people have a lot of questions. And so, what we're seeing not only with B15, but with others are efforts to try to make the hurdle that much harder to be able to get projects financed. And the thinking that folks behind this have is that if they don't get financed, they don't get built and that they stay in the ground and the world will be better off. But here is the logical fallacy in all of that. 
if Canada does not develop its energy resources, it does not mean that the United States won't develop its energy resources. It doesn't mean that Qatar will stop exporting natural gas. And it doesn't mean that when Indonesia or India looks around, and, and interestingly, you mentioned India, Kelly, they have a ministry of coal in India. So you can mm -hmm. imagine what the mandate of the ministry of coal is, and it's not to reduce coal consumption. And so when they look around, to say, well, where are we gonna fill our power needs? They're gonna go turn to coal and other sources that are nearby and cheap and proven. And so if we're going to help them make that shift, we need access to capital, which means that the perverse irony of these sort of embedded financial disincentives to develop projects in the natural gas space are to actually worsen the global carbon picture. This is kind of like the debates that you see on uh, green belts around cities. Now, green belts are great if you're inside the green belt and you can go there. But fundamentally, what we've seen is when cities grow to a certain size, development hops over the green belt and people are left driving that much further in order to get to work. That's why if you spend any time in Ottawa, you have Barhaven, which you have to drive through the green belt to get from Barhaven to downtown. And so I'm not saying that green belts are a bad idea, but by taking certain decisions, it means that you're adding commuting time and thus air pollution and other sorts of uh, sprawl impact because people need to live somewhere and countries need to get energy somewhere. And so part of it is, is to say, what can we do constructively to help? And to me, disincentivizing natural gas, which has a great potential to, to help to reduce the overall global carbon picture, is exactly the wrong answer and will lead to those kind of perverse and suboptimal outcomes uh, and won't give the, the sort of benefits to those who are advocating for it, except that they can sit smugly with their arms crossed saying, well, we're not doing any of this in Canada. It's a global yeah. world. We got to think globally. Well, and, and be realistic. And I think the way I'd like to end this podcast, uh, uh, Eric, is to talk a bit about Article 6 in the um, Paris Climate Agreement. And you talk about it in your paper because, you know, the way you, the, when you look, the, the emissions don't stop at the borders. Like, you know, this is, a, this is an existential global issue. Um, and the, you do talk about uh, uh, the support for or the initiative to support coal to gas conversions. Could you talk a bit about Article 6, what it is, and, and what this would, initiative would look like? So I think the way you think about Article 6 of the, of the Paris Agreement is that it provides a voluntary nascent foundation for a global carbon market. And we like, we, we you know, number one, I believe it's really important that we measure carbon and that we put a value on carbon. But if you measure and put a value on something, it's irrelevant unless you have an ability to trade that because that becomes an asset class. So if I have a lot of land and I'm putting in uh, plants to make myself a carbon sink, I should be able to get a benefit from that. And so other than what you've seen in the past with the Quebec and California uh, cap and trade regime, We've seen precious little in terms of making carbon markets genuinely global. And I think over the medium term, as more countries look at this, there's about 
70 or so regimes that have prices on carbon globally. Uh, and, you know, that includes subnational and national. And in places like China, they have a carbon price on the power sector, for example. But what Article 6 does is fundamentally allow something like a carbon market, because one of the great advantages that Canada has is has a huge concentration of energy resources in Western Canada. And that not only allows for economies of scale, but if we're trying to do something like carbon capture and sequestration, it means that you're in a position to do that at scale instead of having to do all sorts of small CCUS deposits all over the country. And so it's about also, once we put a value on that, once we've set up the mechanisms to trade that, it's making that system work. So it introduces the concept, like anything that's new in international agreements, it's voluntary. But part of why Canada should want that is because it then puts Canadian climate leadership at the forefront. There's already a price on carbon in Canada. That's a debate that's settled. Many people have many views on that debate. But we've got that. So why not work towards a regime where we are able to work our carbon markets globally because it's a global environment with global challenges as opposed to just having it all rooted in one country? Because the other thing that we're going to have to think a lot about is Canadian natural gas that gets, say, produced in Alberta and shipped to the Gulf Coast and exported by the Chenaires of the world out to global markets. Well, the way that that carbon is recognized now is that it's all in Canada. But, you know, should there not be a mechanism? Like we've seen this with global supply chains where people are saying, where did the value added happen? Where did each stage of the process happen? And how do we do that accounting? It's not just that where the final point of assembly is, is where the value is created. And it's the same idea in the carbon space where we need to have a better accounting of how we do this and an ability to trade. In Canada as an abundant energy producer and also a leader on climate is well positioned to benefit from that. And this regime would allow Canadian natural gas to actually be seen as different and better in the world. Because I argue, Kelly, clearly and directly in the paper that natural gas that is produced under a carbon price can and should be seen as ethically better than natural gas that is not. Because if we are actually concerned about dealing with the carbon issue, we need to figure out how we're creating a premium so that people who are using the natural gas can say, I have used a product where my emissions have been accounted for and paid for. And so there's all of these kind of structuring regimes that we need to think about. And one of them has to do with how do we get the superiority of Canadian natural gas recognized. And it's not just that the terrajoules are, are, are better. That's not the point. The point is how we deal with the carbon issue and then how that reflects back on the regulatory process, on the sound practices of Canadian producers, and on the sound practices in terms of relations with communities, including First Nations, which we've seen this very exciting trend of First Nations ownership in the natural gas 
business. And so we need to start working on this regulatory coordination infrastructure in order to make this work. And Article 6, which if we take it in the right direction, would see Canadian natural gas not, not be counted 100% against Canada's emissions, but be also counted against US emissions because that's the end point. And so there's a lot of work to do on this, but at least this concept has been introduced. And now somebody has to pick it up and make it a priority and, and, and actually uh, figure out how we can use this to the best advantage of the global environment, the Canadian energy industry, the Canadian economy, and our people. Well, you've, you've given a great summary of something that is a bit difficult for most people to understand, but I think that it's clear, as you stated, uh, there's a price on carbon. That ship has sailed. It isn't, you know, there's a lot of pushback on that, but globally over the next decade, there'll be more and more carbon prices or some sort of facility to trade carbon. And um, we do have a giant opportunity given the quality, quantity and, uh, and uh, governance around the production of our fossil fuels to be a beneficial player in that market. So Eric, let's end it there because I think there's, there's so much more we could talk about it. And um, I'll just put a plug out for the event we're going to have with you in, uh, in Toronto. And I look forward to seeing you in person in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Kelly, thanks so much for, for doing this, for your time. And I look forward to spending time and uh, having an ale and then we can figure out how we solve the other half of the energy industry's challenges and Canada's challenges in general. We, we could start into contracts for difference now, but I think that would be, a, that's a bit deeper <laughs> than people need to understand. But before you go, um, what I know you've, you've appeared on podcasts with Colin. So what are you reading today outside of research for another paper? <clears throat> so uh, a couple of things. So I've been, um, I've done some stuff in the Middle East lately. So I'll, I'll hold the, hold the books up. So first I'm reading the first Muslim about the story of Mohammed, because I want to understand a little bit about the development of the Muslim faith and how that intersects with um, other parts of the world. And of course, you know, given, given the spread from Indonesia to uh, Morocco, uh, it's important to have some understandings on that, on that process. So figuring out what, what the foundations are so we can look at modern geopolitics. The other piece is I'm rereading uh, the World for Sale, because I'm writing right. a book review for CGAI on that, which is all about commodity traders, which is something that is little understood. And Javier Blay and Jack Farchi have written this utterly fantastic book, which tells the story about how the Glencores of the world, the Trafiguras of the world, the Vitals of the world, Vitals, the largest um, oil trader in the world, the Cargills of the world, which is the largest grains trader. So there's a handful of these companies out there. And a friend of mine who, who worked for one of these companies for a long time says, we're the grease that makes the global economy work. And I think if you want to look at global trade and supply chains, you got to understand that. So trying to understand some of the cultural foundations of modern geopolitical matters and also trying to understand, uh, you know, what's the price of wheat going to look like and how do we understand what the price of uh, other commodities are going to look like. And then obviously, uh, in that case, how can Canada position itself to benefit? That's a great metaphor of the Greece, and I'll just make my own metaphor. Anybody, all you folks that have Teslas and Volts and 
cars like that, just remember that they've got gear oil and grease in them too. And they're always will. They always <laughs> will. So don't forget that. Details, Eric, always, Kelly. Details. <laughs> always a pleasure. Great to see you again. Thanks for your time today. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.